Welcome to the Aerospace Advantage podcast. I'm your host, John Slickbaum. Here on the Aerospace Advantage, we speak with leaders in the DOD, industry, and other subject matter experts to explore the intersection of strategy, operational concepts, technology, and policy when it comes to air and space power. So if you like learning about aerospace power, you are in the right place. To our regular listeners, welcome back. And if it's your first time here, thank you so much for joining us. As a reminder, if you like what you're hearing today, do us a favor and follow our show. Please give us a like and leave a comment so that we can keep charting the trajectories that matter to you most. This week, we're meeting with the newest members of the Mitchell Institute Space Power Center of Excellence team. And as everyone knows, we really take national security space power seriously. General Chilton helps lead our efforts in that zone, but it's also important to have a strong bench of talent. And I'm not just talking about folks who understand things from an academic perspective. What we need are people who have no kidding been responsible for working the strategies, operational concepts, and technologies that are the bedrock of space power. We want first-person expertise. That's crucial when we're dealing with the Department of Defense, Congress, industry, and the broader policy community. And that's exactly the type of talent that is on our Space Power Center of Excellence team, or MySpace as we call it for short. Okay, so given that explanation, it's awesome to introduce to you our current set of space experts. Today, we have Tim Ryan. Great to be with you, Slick. Thanks. Tim, thanks so much for being here. We also have Henry Heron. Henry, thanks for being here. Good afternoon. Thank you for having me. All right. And last but certainly not least, Charles Galbraith is joining us today on the podcast. Charles, welcome. Thanks, Slick. Great to be here. Everyone, it's awesome that you've been on board and really pushing it up in so many areas at a time when the idea of what comprises space power, it's evolving so fast. I mean, we talk about it all the time here on the Aerospace Advantage, but our adversaries are moving fast and we need to ensure we play our cards smartly in this domain. So before we cut to the policy and technology discussion, I'd like to really have you guys introduce yourselves Tell the audience about yourself so that everybody understands your background. And everyone's using their regular voices on this podcast, so the content is really key. So to make this all really easy, just break down your background before Mitchell and name one top issue you think folks need to track as they understand modern space power. We're speed dating here. I'm going to start with Henry. Thank you. Been with Mitchell Institute for about a month now, started the middle of February, coming right off of active duty, spent just over 30 years in the Air Force and the Space Force, retired out of the joint staff, working space policy. My background uh, started off in space launch, but worked space operations, electronic warfare, cyberspace planning, really what was outside most of what was Air Force Space Command previously. So tours at NORAD, USAFE, the National Security Agency, PACAF, time on the air staff and over with NATO. Looking at the top issue, I think the top issue would probably be for me that the, as we continue to move forward, we're going to see space capabilities integrating with the joint force in a way where the joint force is really going to have to understand how they can support the space domain as well. It's really been the other way, I think, for most of the time we've been doing space operations and the joint force is going to have to start understanding how they can flip that script and support space operations. Great breakdown. Congratulations on your retirement and really excited to have you here on the Mitchell team. So thanks, Henry. All right, Charles, what about you? Thanks, Lick. I joined the Mitchell team at the end of February, so this is my third week on the job. I spent 30 years in the Air Force and the Space Force. I retired as a colonel from the Space Force staff, where I was fortunate enough to be the Deputy Chief Technology and Innovation Officer on the Space Force, which was a really cool job. My background is operations and acquisitions. I've spent a lot of time out at Los Angeles and Space and Missile Systems Center, now Space Systems Command. 
working space control activities as well as advanced technology demonstrators. I do have some missile warning and some satellite ops experience rolled in there as well, but also uh, some policy and tests that I think provided a broader background for me. Some of the top issue, the top issue I think is the threat. And part of the reason the Space Force was established was to get after the threat to our space capabilities. And how we do that in a way that helps deter conflict from ever happening in space and also preserving the space domain is absolutely critical while we continue to provide those capabilities that Henry mentioned back to the Joint Warfighter. Yeah, that is awesome. Again, thank you for your service. I really appreciate having you on the Mitchell team. And I know you guys are going to do such great things for us. Now, I want to switch over to Tim. You're our Mitchell veteran now. So give us your take. What's it been like as you've evolved from your time in uniform to what we do at Mitchell? Thanks, Like This has been a great transition from uniform. It enables me to be able to stay engaged with issues and advocate for things that I have a great passion for. The beauty of what we do here at Mitchell, it provides the entire team the opportunity to maneuver between Hill, industry, the media, international partners, academia, and of course the services as we start to work issues. The focus always is move the needle, be an informed voice for good, and move the needle. So as you take a look at many of the issues that we talk about here at Mitchell, both on the air side and the space side, there's overlap. So when you start to get together and you have the synergy of having different fellows being able to talk about an issue from their perspective, you suddenly get a very robust and voice for good as we go forward. With regards to hire, man, it is all about getting folks with a strong operational background. That is and always has been the hallmark of what Mitchell brings to the fight. But you want to be able to have enough of a vary that those operational backgrounds are complementary and they're on balance. As you just heard, Charles and Henry lay out what their backgrounds are. I've laid out my background in the past as well. I, I don't have, for example, any time with acquisitions. And so to be able to take and look at an issue now on balance with Henry bringing a steep policy and EW background, with Charles being able to bring an acquisitions background and me being able to bring my operational background, you're gonna to start to see where we're really gonna be able to take and move the needle on many issues and concerns as they are, pertain to the Space Force and space threats as we go forward. Yeah, that is a great point. What you don't have is an F-16 guy on your team, so I'm a volunteer if you need that expertise. You guys, you three individuals here, you represent a really broad set of space expertise, and that's within the Space Force, you know, with the tech community and beyond. So can you talk to us about the breadth of the space community as it currently stands and how you work to include all of these perspectives as you do your work? Hey, thanks, Slick. I'll tell you right from the front, and you'll see it as we have these discussions, there is not one path to follow. When I came into the career field, many of us started out in ICBM operations, and then we went on to a space assignment because ICBM and space were still one career field. As you flash forward, now you look, we have an established space force, its own service. It has space operators, it has acquisitions, space communication, intelligence professionals, all built within that service. And they now have the opportunity to truly become the expert in their fields. Having that ability to experience all the different pieces and parts of the Space Force is gonna result in a specialization and an understanding that quite frankly, was never available to me when I was in the space career field. I think that's an imperative for the success of these warfighters as they start to go up against a thinking adversary and an adversary that continues to contest them in the domain. If I can build on that, as I 
mentioned previously, I spent most of my career outside of what was Air Force Space Command, looking to integrate space capabilities into air operations, into cyberspace operations, working through the electromagnetic spectrum. And all of that really collectively fostered an understanding of trying to keep the focus on the joint fight for me. And I think that's going to be something that we're going to see having to change a little bit as we go forward. Traditionally, I think you, you look at the folks who were the space operators in the Air Force and who transitioned to the Space Force, and they spent most of their careers at really one of several kind of bastions of space that the, really within the United States, and, and then occasionally they'd get one assignment overseas or maybe get one deployment over to the deed, but really a very confined set of experiences. And now as they grow and look to be a part of the joint force, we're going to have to see an expansion where you see more guardians out there really in the joint fight, integrating with the rest of the force. And we're starting to see that U.S. Space Command has put together their joint integrated space teams, the GIST teams. They've got those at the COCOMs. And now, more lately, the Space Force is setting up these components where they've got one at CENTCOM out in Pacific and in Korea, and I think they're continuing to grow those. And so that's going to provide an opportunity for those guardians to get those experiences out with the other combat commands outside in the other theaters and have a greater appreciation for how to integrate space capabilities into those other combat command areas. So my, my background, I've always leaned more towards the technical or the strategic side. I'm really excited that the Space Force brought in the space acquisition community as well to be part of the stand-up. And I think that's critical because a lot of the aspects of space operations are technical. And having some sort of technical background helps move the needle forward, as Tim said, on how we're thinking about it. Rendezvous and proximity operations is a good example of that. And so I think that the combination of an acquisitions perspective on the technology capability as well as the operational perspective is really critical. I've always been an advocate that the space community is small enough, and certainly now with the Space Force, that the line between operations and acquisitions should be very blurry if there at all. And both of those perspectives help inform the policy that, that we need to move Space Force forward as well. I'm really excited about this, and as Tim said, there, there is not one path to success, and, and as the Space Force establishes itself, and defines its career fields and its specialties and requirements, it's really exciting for the new guardians to be able to define their own path as they move forward. Uh, for me, again, back to the technology side, it's important to just maintain a good connection with the acquisition community, the research community, academia, industry, and the commercial sector as well. And as we're going to move forward with an international flavor and the combined operations, I think maintaining those relationships with our international partners is going to be absolutely critical as well. I want to shift gears just a little bit and get your perspective because all three of you over the last 20, 30 years have deployed all over supporting various missions around the globe. The threats we're going to face in the future and we're already confronting now, they're going to look a lot different than what we were doing in Iraq and Afghanistan. So can you talk to us about how you see the notion of a forward-leaning Space Force Guardian engaging with the broader joint force as that's evolving? And we're already seeing things change at the COCOM level. And I think part of this is the idea that it's not just space in support of terrestrial missions. Now we need to think about how we're presenting COCOMs with space-specific mission options. So what are your thoughts there? Yeah, so I was deployed over at IUD on the Director of Space Forces staff in the KOC, focusing on national systems. It was 2014, an interesting time at the beginning of the deployment. Things were fairly routine. Suddenly, smack dab in the middle of the deployment, ISIS controlled a third of Iraq. So it made it a little bit sporty during those times. But to your point of where that 
where we came from and where we're going. Interestingly, the positions that I filled and that the team filled in the CAOC are the exact positions that have laid the foundation for establishing the U.S. Spaces Central that is now established at CENTCOM headquarters. And they focus on space integration across the entire AOR. That's exactly what we need to have as we go forward. Space cannot be something that is bolted on, which it oftentimes was in the past, that we plan for an air operation, we plan for a ground operation, or we plan for a sea operation, and then, oh yeah, and we're going to need space. It has to be right from the beginning, it has to be integrated in the plan, and it brings its own merit right to all of those things. Space Force continues to grow these compact commands. You have seen them in Indo-PACOM, you've got one in U.S. Forces Korea, and you'll continue to see that integration throughout the combatant commands as they go. Henry had alluded to the fact that also from a U.S. Space Command perspective, they've got their teams out there in each one of these combatant commands as well. So there's much greater representation of Space Force equities and Space Force knowledge out at the combatant command, and that's exactly what we need. Yeah, I deployed in 2007. I was with the Marine Expeditionary Forces in Fallujah working within the Special Technical Operations as a planner. So my focus in my deployment wasn't exclusively on space capabilities. It was more so on understanding a variety of capabilities and how we could use those to support counterinsurgency operations. In Iraq and Afghanistan, those adversaries were really not capable of holding our space capabilities at risk. And that's not the expectation going forward in the future. Potential adversaries are gonna be able to challenge us there. And and really, as Tim is mentioning, having the ability to have space capabilities and space concepts baked into those plans at the combatant command is gonna be incredibly important to ensuring that not just that space command is supporting the operations with those combatant commands, but also that, that those combatant commands are considering scheme of maneuver within space and what they need to do to ensure space can continue to provide various data products and services that that enable that joint fight. So I deployed to Afghanistan in 2009 as the space liaison to headquarters, and that was a really incredible opportunity to see firsthand the multinational force coming together. And within the U.S. cell there, we had access to a certain set of classified information. And there were some of our allies there as part of ISAF that we could share some of that information with. And there were others that we couldn't share at all. And so the ability to, to find out what capabilities we, we had and could share in a way that moved operations forward was critical. And one of the key elements that really helped us was the ability and the access to commercial space capabilities like SATCOM and in some cases overhead imagery. And as we're seeing it in Ukraine now, those types of capabilities that are provided by commercial providers are absolutely critical to supporting Ukraine. Looking forward at future conflicts, I really don't see the United States going in anywhere alone. And so being able to work with within the international community, with our allies and partners to provide the capabilities that we need to support the joint fight is going to remain a necessity. The focus here, especially with you all and what we're doing on the podcast, is really breaking out. It's not an idea. It's not a notion. It's the fact that space is the next warfighting domain. And I think historically in the past, we've space is just being that support asset in the background. And really, you all are out front. And Charles, you mentioned it a little bit there. Look at this big issue that's happening now. Ukraine has benefited big time from SpaceX's Starlink 
the constellation of thousands of small communication satellites in low Earth orbit, they're really benefiting not only as just a nation having communication from a military perspective. General D.T. Thompson, who's the vice chief of space operations, recently commented that the Ukraine conflict has showcased the importance of understanding the implications of incorporating commercial space technologies. So given that context, I really want you guys to drill down. How do you see the relationship between national security space and commercial space evolving. I think the Starlink example suggests that they really have a, so much interdependence. So am I wrong on this vantage point? No, Slick, you're absolutely right. There is a huge interdependence on national security capabilities and capabilities that we can receive from a commercial provider. There just isn't enough budget for us to do everything we want to be able to do from a Space Force perspective. And so we're going to rely on partners and allies as we move forward. And so the commercial capabilities are need to, need to be integrated into the fabric of our operations. But it's highlighted, especially in Ukraine, as there's been some news lately about Starlink reducing the capability that they're providing to Ukraine. And it really highlights the need to clearly establish who are we getting capabilities from? What are those capabilities supporting? How can we rely on them? Are they potentially going to pull that capability away in the future? Are we the only customer that they have, or are we a small fish in their big pond? In which case, you know, they may not be willing to take a loss if they become targeted. And if they do become targeted and an adversary starts uh, attacking a commercial asset, what's our response? Do we defend it? Do we have a priority of what we protect? or how we respond. These are the sorts of questions that, that we need to think through. And I think Mitchell's in a great place to be able to help inform that conversation. I don't think there's a one size fits all. I think it's gonna be based off of the companies, the capabilities, our use of those capabilities. Yeah, just to build onto that, I think, I think the Space Command and the Space Force are also gonna have to better understand the motivation of those commercial companies. I mean, if you have a commercial provider that is, is really their business model is built around supporting the military and the DOD, then it, I think that's fairly straightforward. But what happens when you have commercial companies that their business model is really set up to support other customers and they're baked into their contracting, the need to be able to flex to support the military when the military needs them? What happens in that case when they're flexing to support the military? What about their other customers? And so from a commercial standpoint, those are concerns that help them maintain their business. And without that, that capability won't be there. So I think the folks within DOD need to really understand how that works and how that affects those commercial entities so that we can move forward amicably. All right, perfect, gentlemen. I mean, this is the stuff we need to be talking about here. Here's another topic. Earlier this month, U.S. Spacecom amplified on the tenants originally outlined in the 2021 memo signed by SecDef Lloyd Austin. And those tenants deal with responsible behavior to limit long-lived debris in orbit, obviously focusing on avoiding harmful interference, maintaining safe separation and trajectories, and open communication. So why was it important for U.S. Spacecom to amplify these tenants? And as a reminder to our listeners, remember that the Space Force trains, organizes, and equips guardians. Space Command is a combatant command that is the organization that actually harnesses them for warfighting and other mission applications around the globe and on orbit. Can you guys hop in on that? The five tenants and associated behaviors represent the military perspective on the establishment of norms in space. And it's important to remember that we don't have norms in space in the international community yet. Uh, and I think we're very much like where we were on the air side in the 1920s and 1930s, where the military is helping to inform the creation of, of norms that become some of the FAA standards and international practices. So it's a recognition 
that we need to have norms in space and, and that it's not just for the operations, but also for the preservation of the space domain. I would add, I think that we have to really appreciate the fact that within the DOD, as they're looking at norms and behaviors as one voice within the interagency, they're looking at them from a standpoint of day-to-day -day peacetime operations. And that if there's a crisis or a conflict erupts, that they'll be re-examined uh, as they go to develop rules of engagement and not necessarily thrown out the window, but uh, not necessarily maintained either. I think it's interesting that the DOD, through the U.S. Space Command input, put out tenants that only apply to military space, not civil or commercial. Reality is today there's far more commercial satellites. We talked about Starlink and how large that constellation is earlier that will not be bound by these. Importantly to note as well, our adversaries, the exact adversaries that U.S. Space Command faces daily in a contested and congested environment will not be following these. So while we can go down and start to develop norms as these guys have laid out. I think the other piece that we've got to be able to understand is that there has to be consequences to whatever norms we lay out. And that's why I think it's probably a better task for the Department of State to take lead on this, give U.S. Space Command the ability to start to focus more on deterring conflict and, if necessary, defeat aggression, and delivering space combat power in support of U.S. and allied operations as they're tasked to do. I really want to hop in on this discussion because as we think about air travel, we have the FAA and the ICAO to govern what airplanes do. And think about what happened on 9-11. All of a sudden, the skies were taken over and we said, that's it. Everybody stopped flying within a couple of hours. We've sanitized all of our airspace so that we know any good guy flying is now on the ground and anybody flying in the air is a potential hostile threat. That can't happen in space. Right. I mean, everything is flying around at 17,500 miles an hour on a trajectory. And I know that the space debris things that we've seen in Hollywood is not exactly how it's going to work. But it's a great depiction of when things go bad in space, you can't hit the pause button or remove things that aren't in play just to help you out. I mean, that stuff is up there. It's going to be a flight path conflict. And so once we have something like this happen, we really need to have these things in place because it's going to get bad really fast. And then it's not going to be an isolated event. Everything is at play. If it's a military scenario that happens, but the third, fourth order effects with the commercial space, things that are flying out there are going to be massively affected as well. So I think it's just something that folks really need to understand how just negatively impactful these issues could be. So, you know, I really want to dig into these challenges some more, especially this notion of deterrence in space. I mean, it's a really difficult challenge, and at the Air and Space Forces Warfare Symposium two weeks ago, General Saltzman, who is the Chief of Space Operations, presented an idea of competitive endurance. He explained the goal of this approach is to deter conflict in space. So what are your thoughts there? So within that idea, he also put forward three tenets, avoiding operational surprise, denying first mover advantage, and responsible counter space campaigning. I think if you look at all that Holistically, you can see that first, U.S. adversaries know that we're heavily reliant on data products and services coming from space for, for the entire joint force. And so U.S. space systems are going to be targeted. Within that, the resilience or deterrence, resilience has to be more than merely defensive. We have to look at ways in which 
we can study and understand adversaries' counter space capabilities and then be prepared to negate those systems. We have to be able to go out and take those out, very similar to the way we would roll back an integrated air defense system through the air, right? We, ha we have to be able to take out those, those capabilities that are going to deny us access. Secondly, this has got to be done in a responsible manner. I mean, we were just talking about, to a certain extent, debris. And so when you look at the number of satellites that are in operation, particularly in low Earth orbit, as was mentioned previously, you can't just can't just go cowboy up there, right? You're going to have to consider what actions you're going to take and then take those actions in a, in a responsible, just to avoid something that uh, it could be catastrophic and have collateral damage beyond anything we're looking to do. Thanks, Henry. Just to add on to that, I think General Saltzman and his team that came up with this competitive endurance approach did a really good job of, of providing something that, that sounds simple on the front but when you start digging into it, there's a lot there. There's a lot of thought that, that went into this, uh, and there's a lot of things to unpack in those simple statements and the three tenets that, that Henry outlined. So absolutely, it starts with awareness. We need to be aware of what's going on in that space domain. And really, it's partly for our own sort of traffic management, but also it's attribution. If a potential adversary takes an action that we think is irresponsible or potentially dangerous or threatening to our space assets that we rely on, we need to be able to call them out on it. And so I, I think that first part, that there's a lot of capability and a lot of discussion to advance our awareness in the space domain. And then looking at the next set, resilience, it's not enough to just say, yeah, we see you taking a, a swipe at us, but it's also, if you do, you're not going to have the desired effect because we have a resilient set of capabilities. And so that further deters potential adversaries. So yeah, the first two steps, we see what you're doing. We know what you're doing. If you try something hostile, it's not going to have the desired effect. Those are great deterrent elements. And then finally, the third piece, if you do something, we'll be able to respond to you. Your assets are at risk as well. That combination of capabilities and thoughts really hammers home the deterrent aspect. When you think about deterrence in a traditional sense, you know, think about nukes, it, it's typically, if you hit me, I'm going to hit you, and it's all bad. But in space, if you hit me and I hit you, and that's our only answer, we've hit each other, and now we've created some debris, and now we all got to live with that. So I, I really think that this approach of, I see what you're doing, what you're going to do isn't going to have the effect you think it is, and yes, I do have the ability to hit you back. That is a great way to deter the conflict in a whole new way. I think it kind of upends the traditional deterrent approach, and I think it's really appropriate for the space domain for the exact reasons we've talked about it, as it being a unique domain where things persist. Yeah, first off, Slick, you can now see why these guys are such a valuable new addition to the MI space team, just in the answers to this question and everything else that they've laid out. First, I want to lay some foundation work. I want to take a look at the CSO has, it, it's come out in the media in the last few weeks, month or so, that he puts out C notes out to the force, puts it out for discussion that are on his mind that he can get out to the force. But he sent out a C note lately that talked about why the space force exists. And he said clearly in it, the service was established to contest and when directed, control the space domain. That responsibility for space superiority with military force is why they established a service and it is not a functional community. And I think that is a great way to be able to frame exactly the way that these guys were laying out. This is military stuff. This elementary level that the three tenants lay out as these guys described is wonderful, but there's a whole lot more in there. I think that when you look at what do we need to establish and underpin for space superiority, 
It begins and ends with space domain awareness. And that is totally different. And I've said this in a couple different avenues. That is different than space situational awareness, which is what we have now, where we have done a great job. We track all these items in space. We catalog them. We know where they're at. And physics takes its place and we track them as they go around. Space domain awareness, that's a totally different task. That's a critical task for the space intelligence professionals. They need to understand what is up there, but what are they doing? What can they do? What is their intent? So space domain awareness is a much more robust intelligence picture, if you will, of what is happening on orbit so that we are actually able to defend against it. It is, again, far more than just tracking objects. I think the Space Force is focused on proliferating orbits, as Charles laid out, to deny the first mover advantage. I think when you take that approach, and it is a good first approach to be able to say, all right, I'm going to proliferate this orbit so that now I've made your calculus of targeting it much more difficult, but you still need to be able to couple that with counterspace capabilities that, again, our adversaries are establishing and going after today, but you want to be able to establish those counter space capabilities to prevent adversaries from leveraging space-enabled targeting to attack our forces as we go forward. All right, guys, there's been a lot of discussion on the need to make our constellations more resilient. There's a lot of work being done to improve the resilience of the ground systems, particularly against cyber attack. So first and foremost, can you define what resilience means in space and then walk us through how cyber defense plays into this? And it's really important because I think a lot of people just think of satellites in orbit. Folks fail to appreciate the connectivity net that ties together an equally important terrestrial set of capabilities. And it's the integration of this that really gives us space power. Yeah, thanks, Slick. So in general, resilience is the ability of the architecture, the space architecture, to withstand an attack and provide assured capabilities back to the joint warfighter. And we can achieve resilience through a variety of means. We've talked a little bit about proliferation. It's just you know, increasing the number of assets that are there, like the Starlink constellation. But you can also do it through disaggregation or distribution, diversification, deception. There's just a lot of different ways to achieve a resilience. Now, for the cyber side, for the ground side, yeah, absolutely. We know that we connect with our satellites and the data that they provide via cyber means. And so protecting that link is absolutely critical. And it's really important from an acquisitions perspective that we incorporate that notion and that ability from the beginning of our acquisitions and rather than try to bolt it on at the end. Yeah, I'd agree as far as looking at cyber defense is probably one of the more important elements to be thinking about. When you look at adversaries we've had in the past, space capabilities, the access to space, it's expensive. Access through cyberspace is less expensive. So the number of potential adversaries that can target our space systems through through cyber means is greatly increased compared to those that can actually contest us in space. So to be able to defend against that is, is going to be incredibly important. And also I would add, I think that as we go forward with the growth, we talked about the growth in commercial satellites, but even our potential adversaries are putting up more and more satellites. And I think there's or at least I hope, that there's a growing appreciation for the debris issue across the board. The, the debris doesn't just affect us in the U.S. It doesn't just affect our coalition partners. It affects everybody. And so the folks that are developing more mature space programs are going to want to avoid that as well. Yes, like I think these guys did a really good job of covering it. I just want to throw out a real-world example of exactly what your question is. Get, don't have to look much further than the Russians and what they did against Viasat right before the Ukraine invasion. 
at that time, Viasat, that, they were the primary provider of internet to Ukraine. So Russia conducted a crippling cyber attack that took them offline and actually even bricked the receivers. So that's just a small micro example of what a cyber attack on space assets, both on orbit and ground assets can do. I want to switch gears here really quick because the director of national intelligence just released the annual threat assessment. And this is really important because the document highlights that China and Russia are growing their anti-satellite weapons capabilities and capacity. So why is this a big deal? Slick. So we've recognized that China and Russia have threat capabilities against our assets for a long time. So that's in itself isn't new. What I think is really new and why it's a big deal is the fact that we're willing to talk about it openly. Just a few years ago, we couldn't say that space was a warfighting domain. And now we're having a conversation about the weaponization of space by China and Russia and how we need to defend against it. So, so moving that discussion forward is absolutely critical. The reiteration that China and Russia have these threats. And it's not just the directed ascent ASAT that causes debris, but also ground-based lasers. There's cyber threats. There's on-orbit threats. That list is growing. And so it's a good reminder for everybody that we need to get after an ability to deter those threats from being executed, as well as assuring our capabilities. So I think this simultaneously is a call to action for us, but I think it's also a stabilizing means of saying, yep, we know what's going on out there. You're not going to be able to do something without us being aware of it. So be careful. And it goes back to that set of tenants that General Saltzman laid out. The integration of counterspace capabilities by the Chinese, we see that in, in the assessment, both kinetic and non-kinetic. Those need to be addressed now before it's too late. We start to see that addressed in the current budget, and that's wonderful. Again, the Chinese are integrating space with EW information operations and C2 to erode any advantage U.S. military has. Uh, this is just another reason that the JADC2 efforts need to develop much faster than the current pace that they're on. I would just add that the, I think one of the big deals now is that we actually have a separate independent U.S. Space Force that is focused solely on countering these threats, right? They're out there to organize, train, and equip a force to ensure access to, through, and in the space domain, which is not something we've had for very long, and that really should hopefully embolden not just the Department of Defense, but the American people realizing that there's somebody that's actually specifically paying attention to these threats. When it comes to space, transparency hasn't always been a hallmark. National security space is notorious for classification issues, and I get it. The community largely evolved through the intelligence collections lens and missile warning in the event of a nuclear war. So that drove the important culture tied to keeping things buttoned up. But the world is now a different place. And what we are doing in space has evolved a lot. When it comes to the point to keeping too many secrets will actually impair the mission, right? And I don't think I'm alone in thinking like this. And we've talked about it several times here. Several senior leaders have commented on the need to declassify parts of the space mission where it can and take Note earlier this month that General Dickinson, the commander of U.S. Space Command, testified on the Hill about this issue. So let's go around the table quickly. What are your individual perspectives on the need for declassification and the progress that DOD is making? There needs to be a distinction between declassification and overclassification. From an operational standpoint, the biggest overclassification use that I saw was just the use of the no foreign stamp on all kinds of documents that, that really didn't need to be there. When it came to operational planning or execution. If there was someone within the Air Operations Center that needed access to information, we were normally able to get that information to them to be able to conduct the operation. 
That doesn't mean that everybody got access, but the people who needed to have access were able to get that, at least in operations. Now, from a standpoint of reducing classification to bring more people into the discussion, particularly in the planning phase, that definitely is all kinds of pluses on it and should be looked at. Yeah, this is a, one of those perennial issues that uh, has been dogging the space community for a long time. And finding that right balance of preserving our war-winning capability while sharing enough information to deter that war from ever happening in the first place is a fine balance. But there's things that we can do out of operational necessity to share information within our community in the U.S. as well as with some of our international partners. As I mentioned, uh, I was in Afghanistan. We were trying to share missile warning information with our allies in different parts of the country so that if there was a ballistic missile attack, they could take cover. But we couldn't share the actual message that that came out of our overhead sensors. But what we could do is pick up the phone and say, you've got inbound, take cover. So there is a way to find out what is the important information that we need to be able to convey and how can we get that to the people that need it. Operational necessity has got to be one of the drivers here. And then looking at it from the acquisition side, as we start to try to broaden the set of potential suppliers to venture capital and some of the small startups, they may not have access to classified information. So if we're overclassifying the requirement or overclassifying the request for information or request for proposal, we're going to de facto exclude a set of potential providers that we don't want to. So I think as we go forward, we have to be very careful or the Space Force has to be very careful of how it crafts its things to make sure that it doesn't keep a sector of the acquisition community out of the game. I agree. If you can lower the classification to allow better collaboration and mission success while still protecting the material as you need to, do it. Space is a team sport. U.S. allies, industry, everyone else that supports it. So limiting any one of them hurts all of them. That's a great wrap-up there. Tim, you've been with the Mitchell team the longest, and I noticed, and we all know, that the Space National Guard is a big issue for you and for the broader team. So give us your pitch. Why should we care? And obviously, I want to know what Charles and Henry think, too. Yeah, thanks, Slick. Bottom line, the authorities aligning to ensure a rapid, responsive mission execution just aren't there when you talk about the space assets that are aligned under the Air National Guard today. They need to be aligned right to the command that is going to organize them. That's not just an org chart thing. That's an operational imperative. What do they bring to the fight? They're the surge capacity for active duty force. They provide critical aspects of day-to-day operations. We're talking 16 units across seven states and one territory. They provide the only mobile survival missile warning platform, 60% of the space electronic warfare capabilities, and they operate 50% of the military satellite communication capabilities day-to-day. As we've seen, GPS, satellite communications, those are being jammed in Ukraine. They continue to be attacked by fielded counterspace capabilities by the Russians. The Chinese continue to grow their counter space capabilities. We can't afford to continue this misalignment. China continues to align their cyber space and electronic warfare under one commander so that they can get that synergy. Yet our forces remain misaligned. We need to fix this now. I agree with Tim on the rationale and a great rundown of what the Guard provides our space community. Really, it deepens our bench for the Space Force. And the same rationale that is used to create an independent service for space, the Space Force, I think applies to the creation of a Space Guard as well. We need to have a group of folks that are focused on the threat, dedicated professionals that have the deep set of mission knowledge. So at the end of the day, I think we're going to have to look at what gives our country the greatest set of expertise to defend the space domain best set of flexibility to address an uncertain future, and there's going to have to be a a cost uh, evaluation as always. 
I also agree with the need for a Space National Guard. I think just a slightly different take on it. When you look at so many of the space systems where you just have a squadron or maybe a couple squadrons associated with different space capabilities, within an active duty career, it's so difficult to get serious depth within one system. And the Guard definitely provides that opportunity where you can balance professional development and depth in one system and really produce over time, a field of senior NCOs and field grade officers that really know a system inside and out and can provide that depth of expertise. We have had such an awesome conversation. I want to thank you three for being here today. And just as you say goodbye, I want to go around the room for any parting shots that you guys have. So yeah, just one really quick plug. Slick, appreciate the time. I just want to remind our loyal listeners that may be in the DC area or out coming to the DC area on the 5th of April, from 9 till 3 over at the Army Navy Country Club, we will be holding the Mitchell Institute Space Power Security Forum, our second annual forum. We're going to have a wonderful day of three keynote speakers to include General Saltzman, the CSO, Dr. Derek Tornier, the Director of Space Development Agency, and Dr. Lisa Costa, the CTIO for the United States Space Force. Including, we're going to have three panels they are going to talk about various things from defending North America with missile warning and tracking to protecting and defending assets in space and a proliferated orbits and small satellites. And we've got even more space leaders lined up on those panels. So please go to the Mitchell website. You can click on a registration button right there and we look forward to seeing you. Thanks. Slick Charles here. Thanks for the opportunity to have this discussion today. Um, I'm really thrilled to be part of the Mitchell team and helping to advance the thoughts on space power development. Thanks. Yes, Slick, I really do appreciate this opportunity, and I'm happy to be part of the team as well. I mean, Charles and I have uh, come in and, and really been welcomed here, not just to the space element of Mitchell, but really to the whole Mitchell team, and really happy to be able to contribute as best we can. Thanks. With that, I'd like to extend a big thank you to our guests for joining in today's discussion. I'd also like to extend a big thank you to our listeners for your continued support and for tuning in to today's show. If you like what you've heard today, don't forget to hit that like button and follow or subscribe to the Aerospace Advantage. You can also leave a comment to let us know what you think about our show or areas you think we should explore further. As always, you can join in on the conversation by following the Mitchell Institute on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn, and you can always find us at mitchellaerospacepower.org. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Stay safe and check six.